Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. What actually goes on at Area 51? There are two competing narratives. There are accounts pieced together from declassified or leaked government documents that, when woven together, amount to the closest thing we have to an official story. And then there's the conspiracy-laden, primarily extraterrestrial-based, fascinating UFO lore. According to declassified CIA information, Area 51 was used to test nuclear weapons on U.S. soil and also to develop spy planes for the CIA and the Air Force during the Cold War. By the early 1950s, U.S. planes had begun conducting low-flying recon missions over the USSR, but there were constant worries of them being spotted and shot down. So in 1954, President Eisenhower authorized the development of a top-secret, high-altitude recon aircraft dubbed Project Aquatone. The program required a remote location that wasn't easily accessible to civilians or spies. Area 51 was created in the Nevada desert due to its being one of the most remote regions in the continental United States. Then in the summer of 1955, sightings of unidentified flying objects were reported around Area 51. Again, according to the official, albeit leaked story, these sightings occurred because the Air Force had begun testing the top secret U-2 high altitude spy plane. The U-2 could fly higher than 60,000 feet, up to 70,000 feet, roughly, compared to the most normal airliners at that time flying in the 10 to 20,000 feet range. Most of the nation's commercial flights topped out at 12,000 feet. Military aircraft were maxing out around 40,000 feet, and almost no one in the world knew this plane existed. So if a pilot spotted a tiny speck moving high above them at what they thought was an impossible altitude, of course They would not be able to identify it, and it would be logical to assume it might be extraterrestrial. Same for any, you know, Tom, Dick, or or Chikatilo on the ground. Just, why you at me to the beginning of this episode? Why Chikatilo spotting UFOs now? Well, I guess at least you not make a joke of self shame cook. And after those first U-2 flights, the UFO sightings around Area 51 started pouring in. Explains it, doesn't it? Not for some. Some think, how convenient. What better way to cover up, cover up hiding actual alien technology or aliens themselves? Release a smokescreen. Release previously unknown and advanced flight technology to hide other flight technology that's far more advanced because it's not from this world. And that leads us to the second narrative. Has the government been hiding proof of extraterrestrials at Area 51, possibly even working with them or working for them? Cue X-Files theme music now. Well, one former Area 51 employee, uh, supposed employee, claims to have been tasked with reverse engineering the anti-gravitational technology of UFOs to incorporate it into military aircraft. Claims were made that alien beings have been spotted at Roswell and Area 51, and that briefing documents were read describing historical involvement by extraterrestrial beings from the binary star system Zeta Reculi with Earth for the past 10,000 years. Probably the damn space lizards, man. Uh, There have been claims that alien wreckage from from Roswell was brought to Area 51, as you heard about in the alien extravaganza suck back in February of 2017. And we're going to take a fun look into all of this today. Do our best to separate fact from pure speculation in today's highly entertaining deep dive into the conspiracy lover's wet dream known as Area 51 today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. 
Happy Monday, Time Suckers. Happy New Week, Meat Sacks. Work can wait. It's time for Time Suck. I'm the Master Sucker, president of the Pootie and Juju fan club, sadist who tortured with Michael motherfucking McDonald, Triple M. I keep forgetting we're not in love anymore. I keep forgetting things will never be the same again. I keep forgetting how you made it so clear. I keep forgetting every time you're near. Every time I see you smile. Yes, I'm Dan Cummins, and you're listening to Time Suck. And I'm recording today from a from a hotel in Tampa, Florida. So the people around me, very happy to be Triple M this morning, I'm sure. And uh, and that's why today's episode is going to sound a little different. Uh, different mic, different room with very shitty acoustics. Uh, the sound's bounced all around, and I just can't figure out how to stop it. Uh, and my voice is a little shot from show. So apologies for the things I can't control, but welcome to the cult of the curious. Uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, Reverend, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley will, will be able to clean this up quite a bit from, from how I hear it right now in my headphones. Uh, thanks to the majority of you who seem to understand my decision to, uh, you know, do one more Friday's bonus episode and then suspend further Friday bonus episodes, uh, possibly forever. Uh, I know, I know others of you are pissed and feel uh, betrayed. Uh, you know, I get the emails, I see the reviews. Uh, for those of you undecided about how you feel, I'll just say again that, you know, when I made the reviews for the bonus episodes deal, uh, the episodes just, they didn't take nearly as long to create because all episodes were, were shorter and honestly not as thoroughly researched and produced. You know, like if I would have kept the episodes at the original length, kept the research uh, time originally what it was, more minimal, I could do bonus episodes every week and spend less time overall in the suck than I do now. It isn't about trying to back out of a deal. It's about the context around the original deal changing substantially. And uh, it's suddenly making the deal uh, virtually impossible to carry out. Uh, that's part of why I'm recording in a hotel room today because I didn't have time to do this episode because I had to do the other episode uh, back in the Suck Dungeon. So thanks to those of you who do understand and very grateful for all the reviews and ratings uh, you, you've been still giving, uh, you know, uh, and, and, you know, and I did do 25 bonus sucks because of those reviews and ratings. They do mean a lot to me. Thanks for those of you who continue to do that. Thanks for continuing to spread the suck. Uh, huge thanks. Okay. Shifting gears very quickly to a little bit of stand-up. Uh, thanks to the Time Suckers who came out to the Tampa shows. Man, very, very happy. Uh, you know, oh, we got it. I did a Thursday, let's see, six shows. Um, you know, uh, one was sold out. A couple were very close to being sold out. And the other ones had a solid crowd. I mean, you know, uh, over a thousand, you know, time suckers came out in Tampa. It's fan-fucking-tastic. Heading back to Florida this week. Shows at the Palm Beach Improv Friday through Sunday, August 10th through 12th. A little nervous about those ones. I've uh, I'm not done uh, South Florida much because traditionally uh, not many people have showed up in those, <laughs> in those markets. So maybe, maybe, maybe things have changed. We'll find out. And then on to Zanies in Chicago, August 15th through the 18th. Westward after that to Denver, Comedy Works, 23rd to 25th. And then that new lifetime suck on the Narco Satanists on Sunday the 26th. Getting fucking crazy. New merch hitting the store today. Uh, a new second generation hat for everyone and a bunch of new shit for Space Lizards only. Bunch of Space Lizards merch. I'll go into more detail on that in Thursday's Secret Suck about, uh, you know, what's in store literally for the lizards. Uh, some cool cultish danger brain design tank tops, shirts, new stickers. A lot of it glows in the dark. Reminds me of clothes I was into in high school in the best way. And um, and, and, and I have a, a giant fucking bridge troll of a head. And, and it took me years to find a hat that fit me perfectly, but wasn't so big it would look weird on humans with not, you know, uh, watermelon-sized crazy monster heads. So I finally found a hat in Cleveland last year that I've come to love just because it's so comfortable. Uh, I think it's, I think it's cool looking. And I told Access Apparel, our new distributor, uh, that I wanted that exact same hat. 
to be made into a Time Suck hat so I could actually wear it proudly. I mean, sadly, the first generation Time Suck hat, some people are like, why don't you wear it? Because it, it fucking hurts. It just, it, it fits 95% of humans, but not me. It's just, I'm just outside that range uh, head size. And, uh, and, and of course, the one I had to find was the most expensive hat out there. And uh, so I assure you, even though we're charging a few dollars more uh, than the previous hat, uh, we actually make less money on the hats. But I don't care because it's my favorite fucking hat uh, of any hat I've ever worn in my life. Uh, 70% acrylic, 30% wool, 700% imported possum dick fur, 300% domestic bald eagle butthole. This is what gives it maximum quality and durability. Uh, and it looks dope, man. It has inner kind of a cult of the curious stitching, custom label, uh, danger brain print and repeat, underbrim pattern. And we won't be doing another baseball hat for a long time. And, uh, you know, won't be able to afford printing a big bunch of hats like this for a while again. So I hope you like it as much as I do. And then when it comes to hats, you know, we'll take a break from the baseball hats. I know some of you want a different style, and we are working on that right now. Uh, okay, so enough enough shilling, enough business. Time for fun. Time to suck on some of that sweet Area 51 sauce. As I stated earlier, uh, two main narratives with Area 51. Uh, is Area 51 a secret weapon testing facility or a hotbed of extraterrestrial activity? So let's start today uh, taking a good look at option one. Almost everything we know about Area 51 comes from a few declassified documents, uh, the two biggest being released in 1998, 2007. In the declassified documents, the name Area 51 almost always redacted or blacked out. Only two known exceptions, most likely mistakes. What is confirmed is that Area 51 was used to test nuclear weapons on U.S. soil, well, in the area around Area 51, and used to develop spy planes for the CIA and the Air Force during the Cold War. It gets a little complicated with the terminology, like Area 51, because as, as you'll see, we'll get into it here, um, it, it's part of a kind of a, just a large military complex of, you know, sites with various names that are all kind of out there in the same group of, of, of land in the, in the Nevada desert. Area 51 being, you know, one little parcel on, on a much larger testing facility site. Uh, the facility contains the largest amount of weapons-grade plutonium and uranium uh, in the U.S., not secured inside a nuclear laboratory. Uh, so now let's, let's really get into the history of the Area 51 secret weapons development and testing program with today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck Timeline. All right, we start back in 1941, back before Area 51 was ever thought in anyone's head. Uh, to understand how black top secret projects began and how they continue to function today, one must start with the creation of the atomic bomb. The men who ran the Manhattan Project wrote the rules about black operations. The atomic bomb was the, was the mother of all black projects, and it is the parent from which all black operations have sprung since. And it began on December 6, 1941. When FDR authorized the Manhattan Engineering District for the purpose of creating an atomic bomb. It would later be called the Manhattan Project. On December 6th, yeah, the 1941, Colonel Leslie Groves is placed in charge of the Manhattan Project. J. Robert Oppenheimer becomes the project's scientific director. Now, Colonel Groves is the man who also designed the Pentagon. Yeah, he directed the enormous construction effort that went into Manhattan Project's uh, pre-Area 51 facilities, made critical decisions on the various methods of isotope separation, acquired raw materials, directed the collection of military intelligence on the German nuclear energy project, and helped select the cities in Japan that were chosen as targets. Uh, Paul Newman played him in the 1989 Fat Man and Little Boy movie that reenacts the Manhattan Project. And that's a that's a whole nother suck, the Manhattan Project. Uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer was the American theoretical physicist and professor of physics at the University of California, Berkeley. 
Oppenheimer was the wartime head of the Los Alamos Laboratory in New Mexico and, and is among those who are, cre- are credited with being the fathers of the atomic bomb for their role in the Manhattan Project. Uh, Dwight Schultz, a.k.a. Murdoch from the A-Team, old series, plays Oppenheimer and Fat Man and Little Boy. And these two guys were crucial to the development of the atomic bombs dropped in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, uh, the bombs that would inspire Oppenheimer to quote ancient Hindu scripture and say, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. On July 16th, 1945, the atomic bomb is tested inside the White Sands Proving Ground in the New Mexico high desert, just over 100 miles west of America's butthole, Roswell, New Mexico. Now, interesting trivia, the first atomic bomb's price tag, factoring in the research and infrastructure uh, created that went into completing it, Adjusted for inflation, $28 billion. Yeah, very, very expensive weapon. By 1945, the Manhattan Project had 80 offices and dozens of production plants spread out all over the country, including a 60,000-acre facility in rural Tennessee outside of Knoxville, a town called Oak Ridge, that pulled more power off the nation's electrical grid than New York City did on any given night. Uh, roughly 30,000 people live in Oak Ridge today, and it wasn't even officially incorporated into a town until 1959. The Manhattan Project essentially created this town, the government still being the town's primary employer. August 1945, atomic bomb is dropped on Hiroshima on August 6th. Uh, Another one on Nagasaki, uh, August 9th. Over 129,000 Japanese soldiers and civilians are killed in the first and last nuclear weapon strike in U.S. warfare history. Uh, Japan announces its surrender on August 15th. Okay, August uh, 1st, 1946, the Atomic Energy Act is signed into law by President Harry S. Truman. After signing it, uh, a presidential aide uh, heard Truman whisper, kill him, kill him all. And and then the president stared off into the middle distance and muttered, I am the God of light, and I will bring my thunder down against any who oppose my will. And then he cried softly for a bit, and then he complained of feeling lightheaded, uh, lied down for a while and took a nap. Uh, no, he only signed the bill. I have no, I have no proof of that other shit. Uh, it was the, it was the Atomic Energy Act that the, uh, or with the Atomic Energy Act that the designation "born classified" came to be, and it was the Atomic Energy Commission that would oversee the building of seventy thousand nuclear bombs uh, in sixty five different cities, uh, or excuse me, excuse me, sixty five different sizes and styles. Uh, the Atomic Energy Commission would be the first entity to control Area 51, and it would do so with unprecedented power. Uh, and let's explain this notion of born classified real quick. Uh, for history buffs out there, the first law passed in the U.S. officially criminalizing uh, letting an enemy know about sensitive military information was the Defense Secrets Act of 1911. It criminalized obtaining or delivering information respecting the national defense to which he is not lawfully entitled. Then in 1917, the Espionage Act was passed shortly after U.S. entry into World War I, basically just imposed stiffer penalties than the 1911 Act, such as the death penalty for revealing sensitive information. Uh, But not letting the enemy know about sensitive military information is different than officially keeping secrets from not only the enemy, but also the U.S. public and many in the government itself. The notion of born classified or born secret introduced in the Atomic Energy Act was new. Information can now be classified from the moment of its inception. Uh, Info could be and was deemed classified without having to be formally evaluated by any uh, governmental oversight kind of agency or committee. You know, they could create whatever they felt was important to create under the general instruction of build whatever you need to build to fuck Russia up if World War III breaks out. No Senate committee is going to be peeking over your shoulder. No oversight at all. Just get it done. Do whatever you need to do to create bigger and better weapons than the Soviets. 
Uh, January 1st, 1947, the Atomic Energy Commission takes over the assets of the Manhattan Project, which ceased to exist under that name on December 31st, 1946. And this newly formed uh, clandestine operation almost immediately starts doing some real shady shit. Uh, In a 1949 operation called the Green Run, the Atomic Energy Commission released radioactive iodine-131 and xenon-133 to the atmosphere, which contained a 500, or excuse me, which contaminated a 500,000 uh, acre area containing three small towns near the Hanford site in southern Washington. That's actually southeastern Washington, not far from where I am, really. Uh, so, you know, kind of fucked up to pump radioactive elements into the air over towns full of people who have no idea what's happening to them. Then in 1953, the AEC ran several studies on the health effects of radioactive iodine in newborns and pregnant women at the University of Iowa. Arguably much more fucked up. Uh, who should we test the uh, the effects of radioactive material on? Uh, stuff we know for sure is very dangerous based on all the testing that led up to the atomic bombs. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Pregnant women and babies would probably be the most evil. Oh, you're right, Walter. That would be the most evil. You know, I was thinking puppies and kittens, but mm, babies would be the worst. So, so let's do that. Uh, also in 1953, the AEC sponsored a study to discover if radioactive iodine affected premature babies differently than full-term babies. Even more fucked up. Hey guys, I'm really struggling with figuring out how to do something more evil than performing radioactive tests on newborn babies. Uh, any ideas? Oh, um, how about preemies? How about premature, fragile newborn babies already likely suffering from a variety of medical problems that'll make it harder for them to live until adulthood, even if we don't fuck with them? How about we start throwing some radiation on the preemies? God damn it, Walter, that right there. That's why we hired you. Great job. Uh, preemies is absolutely the worst group of humans we could possibly experiment on. God, God my dick is so hard right now. I just can't wait to get started. Uh, in the experiment, researchers from Harper Hospital in Detroit orally administered uh, iodine-131 to 65 premature and full-term infants. In another AEC study, researchers at the University of Nebraska College of Medicine fed iodine-131 to 28 healthy infants through a gastric tube to test the concentration of iodine in the infant's thyroid glands. So mm, slightly less evil, I guess. Uh, at least they're giving radiation to otherwise healthy babies. And who's running this program? Uh, Vannevar Bush, no relation to George W. Bush. Uh, President Roosevelt had appointed Vannevar Bush to lead the group that would create the Manhattan Project to make the bomb before World War II. Bush would head the OSRD, the Office of Scientific Research and Development, created in 1941, the office that oversaw the creation of the Manhattan Project. Uh, Bush was a brilliant engineer, inventor, and science administrator, graduating from Tufts University in 1914 and MIT in 1916. And to be clear, he doesn't appear to be someone who got off on uh, on just, you know, being evil, you know. I know I can get a little cartoonish on some of these things. He he was a highly intelligent, ends justify the means kind of guy. And and in the grand scheme of things, you know, that was, was, uh, you know, probably uh, the mentality the U.S. needed to win the war, you know, needed to win World War II. I mean, I joke around a lot, but I do realize that for the greater good, sacrifices have to be made. Uh, possibly, I don't know, baby sacrifices as, as fucking as monstrous as that sounds, you know, I don't know that for sure, but maybe I'm open to the possibility. I mean, I'm, I'm not some bleeding heart, irrational, extreme liberal who thinks that wars, you know, just, just, uh, never need to be fought or that when they do need to be fought, that there's no excuse not to play nice, that you should never play dirty. I mean, in my opinion, uh, that type of thinking is ridiculously childish and naive, Sometimes the the end does justify the means. Sometimes, you know, uh, winning the war just prevents the most atrocity overall. And sometimes you got to do some shady shit to get there. Uh, The OSRD 
Dissolved after the war. Following the war, Bush helped uh, create the Joint Research and Development Board of the Army and Navy, of which he was the chairman. And then with the passage of the National Security Act in 1947, that, that culture-altering act, we've talked about many times in the suck, man. This is the act that created the CIA, uh, created other controversial agencies, led to stuff like MK, MK Ultra. Uh, with this passage, the JRDB becomes the Research and Development Board, which then quickly morphs into the National Science Foundation. And the role of this agency was to hire and oversee some of the nation's best scientific minds and give them as much money and support as they needed to create the most powerful weapons they could possibly create. You know, they were operating in, in secret with essentially an, an unlimited budget. Just some Cold War shit, man. Bojangles growls and his hair bristles every time I say it. And Triple M grabs his gun as does sweet baby face James Ingram, Grammy winner. All three prepared to fight communists at a moment's notice. Uh, and Vannevar Bush was a dude who was very concerned with the Ruskies, man. Very worried about communism and its spread. Very Cold War. Very worried about Stalin. Uh, for 18 days after the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Bush had monitored the movements of Joseph Stalin's army. As he marched Soviet troops into Eastern Asia, positioning his Red Army forces in China, Manchuria, uh, Sakhalin Island, North Korea. When the fighting finally stopped, Bush knew he had to convince President Truman that the Soviet Union could not be trusted, and then he did just that. He felt that the U.S. needed even more advanced technologies to fight future wars. And following World War II, uh, Vannevar Bush and members of the War Department began planning to use the atomic bomb. Uh, before Area 51 was established, the U.S. government tested their new nuclear post-World War II weapons technology at Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. Tests would go on there from 1946 through 1958. Random trivia, uh, the swimsuit, uh, the bikini, the swimsuit known as the bikini, that entire style is named after this little cluster of islands. On July 5th, 1946, just four days after the first nuclear device, nicknamed Abel, was detonated over the bikini atoll, uh, Louis Rayard, or Louis Rayard, I guess, a French automobile and clothing designer, introduced a new swimsuit design named the bikini after the atoll. Uh, Rayard was a French mechanical engineer by training and uh, and manager of his mother's lingerie shop in Paris. <laughs> uh, he introduced the, the new garment to the media and the public on July 5th, yeah, 1946, uh, at a public school in, in Paris. How awkward to run a lingerie shop with your mom, by the way. Hey, mom, um, what do you think about cutting back on G-strings and doubling down on crotchless panties? Which one do you like the most, mother? Um, which one, when you put it on, gets dad's dick the hardest? <laughs> I mean, I doubt they had those conversations, but still weird. Uh, also, before testing began in 1946, roughly 150 people lived on the uh, Bikini Atoll and were forced to relocate. So that's a little messed up. In 1968, they were allowed to move back. Then scientists realized it was still very radioactive and they had to move out again. Uh, and then beginning in 1975, they were given millions of dollars in compensation for the whole, having their homeland nuclear, uh, or excuse me, obliterated with uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, and again, how can I know? I'm probably saying the word uh, nuclear with the incorrect pronunciation, but goddammit, I got a little bit of an accent. It's just my own accent, so just fucking lay off. Uh, the government eventually realized Bikini Atoll was, was too public of a workspace. The government wanted to find an area on U.S. soil to, to do a nuclear uh, testing away from Soviet eyes. This led to the Nevada test site and then to Area 51. Just, yeah, buddy. Now we're getting into the birth of the conspiracy theorist boner generator known as Area 51. Uh, also the name of a video game I used to play so much at the good old Bulldog Tavern back in Spokane, Washington. My favorite bar back in uh, the Gonzaga days. No longer there, man. Rest in peace, Bulldog Tavern. I miss shooting those damn aliens in their stupid faces. Uh, Air Force Colonel Richard Foghorn Leghorn uh, has been watching the test of Bikini Atoll and realizes the world cannot afford a nuclear war. Uh, his middle name wasn't actually Foghorn, but his last name really was Leghorn. You remember, remember Foghorn Leghorn? 
My God, I love that cartoon as a kid, man. Uh, he was a big rooster from the Warner Brothers, like Looney Tunes cartoons. First popped up in 1946. That's a joke, I say. That's a joke, son. Huh? Remember him and sassy little Henry Hawk used to pal around? Good times, man. Go, I say. Go away, boy. You bother me. Kid don't quit talking as much as you. He'll get his, son, uh, he'll get his tongue sunburned, I say. That's a joke, I say. Uh, Any hoozle, Colonel Leghorn. Uh, not Foghorn Lakehorn, believed that if the United States could fly secret reconnaissance missions over Russia's enormous landmass and photograph its military installations, the nation could stay ahead of the Russians in the Cold War nuclear weapons race. His idea was to create a state-of-the-art spy plane that could fly higher than the enemy's fighter jets could climb, uh, higher than their anti-aircraft missiles could travel, and then Leghorn committed himself to developing a, a new philosophy of spying on the enemy from above, a uh, concept that would become, come to be known as aerial espionage. In 1950, a top-secret feasibility study named Project Nutmeg. Fucking names they come up with sometimes. Really? That's the best? Nutmeg? Well, what's the name for our super cool project? Uh, we're going to think about Nutmeg or uh, or maybe um, uh, Periwinkle. Uh, perhaps, uh, hmm, maybe Basil? Project Basil? Anyway, uh, this, this Project Nutmeg determined for President Truman that, it, that a huge area in southern Nevada— one of the least populated areas in the nation, not situated on a coastline in the continental U.S., was the most ideal place uh, in the continental U.S. to test nuclear weapons. And the Nevada test and training range quickly became 4,687 square miles of government-controlled land. In 1951, the economist who was running the financial office over at the Marshall Plan, excuse me, Richard Bissell, was approached by Frank Wisner, the head of the CIA's OPC, the Office of Policy, the Office, excuse me, of Policy Coordination that funded covert missions, who asked him to help finance building the clandestine weapons testing facility in the Nevada desert that would morph into Area 51. 1954, James Killian, former president of uh, former president of MIT, co-director of the wartime operation of MIT, recruited the same Richard Bissell, uh, placed him in charge of one of the most ambitious, most secret programs in CIA history, the U-2 spy plane program uh, developed under the code name of Project Aquatone. Old Dickie B, man. Dickie B's in charge, boys and girls. Dick Bizzle. Dick Biz. Uh, who's in charge of the spy planes? Dick Biz. Dickie B to the is to the izzle. Uh, Richard Bizzle and his fellow CIA officer, Herbert Miller, the agency's leading expert on Soviet nuclear weapons, flew across the American West in an unmarked Beechcraft V-35 Bonanza in 1955 in search of a location where they could build a secret CIA test facility, the only one of its kind on American soil. And Bizzle was very aware of that Groom Lake, a uh, big dry lake bed, was, was just over the hill from the government's atomic bomb testing facility, that Nevada test and training range all, all, that they already knew was the most remote place. So, so it meant, you know, as far as the agency was concerned, as, for, as secrecy goes, no better place in the continental U.S. for the CIA to set up a new spy plane program and begin their clandestine work, you know. So four months after uh, Dickie B. and Herbert Miller touched down on Groom Lake, Area 51 has its first residence. Uh, the agencies briefed about Area 51 at the start of the U-2 uh, spy plane project where the CIA, U.S. Air Force, National Advisory Committee for Aer Aeronautics, NACA, which is the forerunner to NASA, the Navy, the National Ph uh, Photographic Interpretation Center, uh, the, the, the center that would analyze the photos the U-2 would take during its missions. And now, mofos, we are into the actual construction of Area 51 on the grounds of the Nevada Test and Training Range. Or, you know, adjoining the grounds. It's, it's, you know, it's all part of this huge complex. It's, it's all part of this. Um, all of these things are part of this Nellis Air Force Base complex. You know, it's, it's not attached to the base, but Nellis, Area 51, uh, the test and training range, they're all out in the same area. 
all part of the same group of Southern Nevada military kind of desert land. Uh, originally, the base consisted of, of one airplane hangar and a handful of tents called hooches, constructed out of wooden platforms, covered in canvas tops. Sometimes when the winds got rough, the tents would blow away. Uh, it took another month for halfway decent showers to be built on the base. The men could have been at an army outpost in Egypt or India as far as the amenities were concerned, but um, Area 51 was, was as much Washington, D.C. as it was Wild West. And plans began to build some spy planes in the same area nuclear weapons were, were now going to be tested. And the U-2 would be the first of these planes a top-secret airplane built on the covert orders of President Eisenhower. Its 1955 budget was $22 million, which would be $180 million, uh, or actually over $180 million in today's dollars. It's $180 million in 2011 dollars. And soon, young pilots are running test flights around the Nevada desert. Uh, flight speed and altitude records are being secretly broken by the day, basically. Uh, flight test mechanic Bob Murphy would later state, there was absolutely no government meddling, which enabled us to get the job done. Uh, there was only one man with any kind of serious oversight at Area 51, and that was, you know, Richard Bizzle, man, Dickie Bizzle, DB, baby, Dick Biz. Uh, well, Dickie B felt that the U-2 was the agency's best chance to get hard intelligence on the Soviet Union, considering that one photograph could provide the agency with as much intel as approximately 10,000 spies down on the ground. Uh, President Eisenhower put the CIA in charge of the overhead reconnaissance because, as he later wrote, the aerial reconnaissance program needed to be handled in an unconventional way. What that meant was that the president was that President Eisenhower wanted the program to be black, you know, wanted it to be hidden from Congress and from everyone but a select few who needed to know about it. He also wanted the U-2 to be piloted, or excuse me, piloted by a man who didn't even wear a uniform. If a plane were to crash, he didn't want anyone to know, uh, you know, where it came from. On November 16, 1955, the U-2 gets assigned its first mission. Uh, a personnel transport flight carrying Area 51 employees crashes uh, just south of Area 51, and just north of Las Vegas into the granite peak of Mount Charleston during a blizzard, killing everyone on board. And old Dickie B, old Bizzle, B-Nizzle, had U-2s dispatched from Area 51 to help pinpoint the exact location of the Air Force airplane, an impromptu and unorthodox first mission triggered by tragic circumstances. Uh, The Las Vegas Review-Journal reported that the crash was being kept secret because the men on board were likely... Nuclear scientists working on top secret weapons project at the Nevada test site. And then after they report that, uh, no more reports. Uh, the reporters then suddenly stop asking questions, probably after being contacted by the CIA. Uh, the truth about the crash at Mount Charleston, uh, the single biggest loss of life for the U-2 program, would remain hidden from the public until the CIA finally acknowledges uh, the plane crash in 2002. Well, as far as UFO uh, lore goes, this is very interesting to me. As soon as the U-2s started flying out of Area 51 in 1955, beginning with that, you know, the, the first mission, reports of UFO sightings by commercial airline pilots and air traffic controllers began to inundate CIA headquarters. Uh, later painted black to blend in with the sky, the U-2s at the time were silver, which meant that their long, shiny wings reflected light down from the upper atmosphere in a way that led citizens all over California, Nevada, and Utah to think that these planes were UFOs, like, of course they would think that, you know, like, like, again, as we said in the beginning, the altitude of the U-2 alone was enough to bewilder people. Commercial airplanes flew, you know, between 10 and 20,000 feet in the mid-1950s, usually around 12,000 feet, you know, where the U-2 could fly as high as 70,000 feet. I mean, just, I mean, it's this little metallic speck way, way, way up in the air, way past where anybody assumes anything is able to even fly. Um, and you know, in the modern uh, day UFO craze officially began, as, as you guys know, if you've been listening to all the sucks on June 24th, 1947, 
Um, this is this is uh, this quick refresher on UFO lore that we examined in depth in both the Men in Black suck, you know, in the old bonus alien extravaganza suck. You know, uh, by so just just to just to establish that by 1955, you know, UFO mythology was was heavily ingrained into American culture. Because again, back in 1947, that search and rescue pilot, you know, Kenneth Arnold, spotted nine flying discs speeding over Washington State, or so he claims. While he was out, you know, searching for a, for a downed airplane, and then approximately two weeks later, the crash at Roswell occurred. People are losing their minds. People are suddenly spotting, you know, UFOs all over the place. Newspapers are reporting across the country. The U.S. is demanding answers from the military. Uh, according to a CIA study on UFOs declassified in 1997, the Air Force had originally been running two programs to look into UFO sightings. And uh, we've talked about these before. One was covert, initially called uh, Project Saucer, later called Project Sign. Another was an o- overt Air Force uh, public relations campaign called Project Grudge. And the point of Project Grudge was to persuade the public that UFOs constituted nothing unusual or extraordinary. And to do this, the Air Force, you know, had to go on TV and radio dismissing UFO reports. Uh, were they hiding real reports of actual sightings? That Well, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll get into that later in this episode. So 1956. Meanwhile, this, uh, across the world, the Russians are busy working on their own spy shit at their equivalent to Area 51. Uh, if Area 51 had a communist doppelganger, it was a remote top secret facility 40 miles northeast of Moscow called N, uh, N11-88, a weapons, rocket, and spacecraft center. Uh, Soviet scientist Sergei Korlev, or Korlev uh, was working on a project that would soon shame Amer- American military science and propel the arms and space race into a sprint. In 1956, all the CIA knew of N11-88 was that it was the place where Russia had kept dozens of its captured German scientists toiling away on secret science projects. Working in this facility were roughly 400 German rocket scientists who had been working there for over a decade since they'd been captured in World War II. Uh, President Eisenhower tells Russia in 1956 that the U.S. will no longer fly spy planes over Russian airspace and is lying his ass off when he says this. It's not true. Uh, U-2 planes would start flying missions. And uh, at the time, the U.S. believes their new Area 51 toy uh, is invisible to Russian radar, so they feel very comfortable with this lie. Well, on July 3rd, 1956, old Dick Biz, old D. Bizzle, Area 51 director, uh, gives the signal to start the first U-2 flight across Russian uh, airspace. Pilot Herbie Stockman took off in a U-2 uh, from Weisbaden, Weisbaden, Germany, a little after 6 a.m., in the U-2's camera bay, Stockholm transported a 500-pound high-con camera fitted with the most advanced photo lens ever devised in America up until that point. He says, I was supposed to turn the cameras on when I reached Leningrad. I was to fly along photographing the na- naval installations that were there as well as a couple of airfields that were all part of what we had been led to believe might hold long-range Soviet bombers. But there were no long-range bombers to be found. The famous bomber gap, it turned out, was false. Well, Stockman's photos made the CIA ecstatic. They were ecstatic to justify the entire YouTube program uh, as a flurry of top secret memos dated uh, July 17th, 1956 revealed. One agent wrote, for the first time, we are really able to say that we have an understanding of what is going on in the Soviet Union. However, despite Bizzle's assurances to the contrary, the U-2s were tracked by the Soviets' air defense warning systems from the moment they flew over the country. Uh, they hit those radar screens. Once the film from Stockman's flight was developed, CIA photo interpreters determined that the Soviet, Soviets excuse me, had attempted more than 20 interceptions of Stockman's mission. When Khrushchev uh, learned that Eisenhower and the Americans had betrayed him, uh, Khrushchev, yeah, he was furious, uh, and Eisenhower didn't give a single fuck. Uh, his new toy was traceable, but untouchable. 
The land-based Soviet surface-to-air missiles could not get a shot up high enough to knock this airplane out of the sky. You know, America's spy plane had flown over Russia with impunity. And if the fact became known, uh, you know, the Soviet Union is just going to look weak. So the Soviets aren't going to say anything about this. They just have to kind of sit back and take it. However, after a few more missions, Eisenhower does order the CIA to stop all flights, uh, uh, these big, you know, flights over the Soviet Union until further notice. You know, they'd seen what he wanted to. They got the intel they wanted, and he didn't feel like there was any need to continue to rile the Russians. Well, back at Area 51, Dickie B is now worried that uh, Eisenhower is going to shut down his program. You know, they've ceased aerial surveillance missions and uh, concerned that his program is going to be shut down by the president. He hires a team to analyze the probability of a Soviet shootdown of the U-2. Uh, and the news is grim. The Soviets were advancing their surface-to-air missile technology so rapidly that in all likelihood, within 18 months, they would be able to knock these new planes out of the sky. So, damn it. So, Bissell, he's like, all right, how do we fix this? He thinks about, you know, using some kind of radar-hiding paint on the U-2 planes, but it won't work. Paint's heavy. Uh, the U-2 flew so high, partly because of how light it was. Um, the weight of that paint, well, you know, would, would just drag the uh, the aircraft down. So, D-Bizzle, or B-Dizzle, <laughs> um, uh, puts, puts together a, a group of scientists who could make the CIA some radar-absorbing paint. And these scientists, uh, who worked out of Harvard University and MIT Lincoln Laboratory, created it by the winter of 57, and then the U-2 was painted with it. And then by 57, according, according to the CIA's uh, uh, a study called the, the CIA's role in the study of UFOs, the U-2s accounted for more than half uh, of all UFO sightings reported in the continental United States. So he hasn't been shut down. They're still flying, at least domestically. And then they try to fly with this new paint in, in April of 57. Test pilot Robert Seeker, he takes one of the newly painted U-2s up in the skies of Area 51, and it doesn't end well. Uh, suddenly, the, the anti-radar detection paint they made in that lab causes the plane to overheat, spin out of control, and crash. He's able to eject, but is killed when a piece of the spinning aircraft smashes him in the head. So, so, so much for the new paint plan. It's not working. Uh, Bissell then decides to stop with U-2 production and design an all-new stealth plane, just as Richard Bizzle begins presenting plans for his radical and ambitious new project to the president, a national security crisis overwhelms the country. October 4th, 1957, the Soviets launched the world's first satellite, 184-pound silver orb called Sputnik 1. Now, this was the, the secret that Sergei uh, Korolev had been working on at Area 51's communist doppelganger N1188. The satellite launch meant the Russians now had a rocket with enough propulsion and guidance to hit a target anywhere in the world. So, so damn it, Bojangles just punched a hole in the wall of the hotel room. Uh, hearing about communist Cold War advances makes him so uh, makes him furious. Well, on March 27, or excuse me, May 27, 1957, Area 51 is now less focused on stealth planes for the moment, more focused on making very, very big bombs. You know, or being 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 around this kind of big bomb project of Operation Plum Bob. Operation Plum Bob begins a series of nuclear tests uh, carried out in the Nevada desert that will last until October 7th. And it will be the longest and most controversial series of weapon tests ever carried out in the continental U.S. It consisted of 29 nuclear detonations on U.S. soil. Almost 1,200 pigs were subjected to biomedical experiments and blast effect studies. Seriously, pigs were uh, uh, placed in elevated cages and provided with suits made of different materials in the blast zones to test which materials provided the best protection from thermal radiation. Uh, most of the pigs would survive the initial blasts, uh, but with third-degree burns over 80% of their bodies. Fallout from some of the detonations also killed some livestock grazing just outside the weapons testing facility. Uh, on July 5th, 1957, the biggest bomb was dropped. Security guard Richard Mingus, old Dick Ming, old Dickie Ming, was uh, was at the control point when the when the hood bomb went off. All seventy four kilotons of it, 
Almost immediately after the bombs detonated, a call came in from Mingus's boss, a man by the name of Sergeant May, said there was a major security problem. Uh, the, the Atomic Energy Commission had forgotten to secure Area 51. Uh, uh, Hood was a, was a 74 kiloton bomb, six times bigger than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, remains the largest bomb ever exploded on, uh, on continental U.S. soil. The flash from the Hood bomb visible from Canada to Mexico to 800 miles out to sea. Uh, the blast wave hit Area 51 with such force it buckled the metal doors on several of the west-facing buildings. This is just a fucking blast wave, including a maintenance hangar and supply warehouse. A uh, radioactive ash buried, uh, you know, the area in, in, in you know, in just <laughs> uh, very harmful radiation. Uh, bushes burned uh, the sand uh, after being subjected to 5,400 degrees Fahrenheit, fused into little pieces of glass. Uh, between the fallout and the structural damage, Area 51 becomes uninhabitable. Uh, after Hood, the once bustling classified facility uh, transforms into a ghost town overnight. Um, not unlike, uh, you know, some little mining towns that had dotted that area a century before. So, so due to radiation levels, Area 51 is actually completely abandoned uh, until 1959. And then late in the summer of 1959, 50 employees do return. Uh, to begin work on a new spy plane, old Dickie Biz uh, had a huge Cold War boner over. In December of 1959, President Eisenhower briefed on the status of the new A-12 spy plane. He writes a $100 million check to Lockheed from his discretionary funds for a fleet of 12 spy planes. The creation of this A-12 fleet is given the code name Oxcart. By January of 1960, Area 51 is now buzzing again uh, as they're producing these A-12s. And the A-12, man, is a badass plane. Revolutionary. Huge leap forward in the evolution of flight. 8,500-foot runway had to be created uh, piece by piece because the A-12 rendered standard Air Force runways just unusable. Uh, the ox cart would fly five times as fast as the U-2. Five times. So the agency needed a lot more restricted airspace as well uh, around Area 51 to test it. It was capable of flying at speeds over 2,200 miles per hour, uh, an Oxcart pilot would actually need a 186-mile swath of land just to make a U-turn over. Uh, so an additional 38,400 acres of land around the bases were withdrawn from public access, allowing the Federal Aviation Administration to extend restricted airspace from a 50-square-mile box to a box 440 square miles. Uh, with the A-2, the concern continued to be stealth. The radar results from the poll test were promising, but as the Oxcart advanced, so did Soviet countermeasures to shoot it down. Uh, man, 220, uh, 20, excuse me, 2,200 miles an hour. I mean, the flight distance from LA to New York City, 2,451 miles. Domestic flights take about uh, five hours flight time to travel that distance. This thing could get you there in a little over an hour, less time than it takes to actually drive across LA. <laughs> Much less, actually. Uh, four new aircraft hangars are built, designated four, five, six, and seven. Uh, the former U 2 hangars, whose metal doors had buckled in the atomic blast, converted into maintenance facilities and machine shops. Uh, Dickie B, he has a tennis court put in, thinks about uh, having an Olympic-sized swimming pool <laughs> put in. Uh, and then in 1961, the whole Bay of, Bay of Pigs nuclear fiasco with Cuba happens. Uh, and old Dickie B is blamed by President Kennedy uh, for, for how it's mishandled, and he's out. But testing at Area 51 continues without him. On April 25th, 1962, the ox cart is ready to fly. It had taken three years, 10 months, and seven days from the time the plane was suggested to the president to the first official flight. And fly it does, man. Uh, a, a total of 2,850 ox cart flights would be flown out of Area 51 over a period of six years. And then in the mid-1960s, sightings of UFOs go up again. Of course they do. They reach unprecedented levels. 
because the A-12, the ox cart, is being repeatedly mistaken for a UFO all over again. Now, exactly how many of these flights generated UFO reports is not known, but the ones that prompted UFO sightings created the same kinds of problems with the CIA they had in the previous decade with the U-2, only with elements that were seemingly even more inexplicable. You know, most ox cart sightings came right after sunset when the, when the lower atmosphere was shadowed in dusk. 17 miles higher up, the sun, though, is still shining brightly on the ox cart. So, you know, it looks like it's glowing. The spy plane's broad titanium wings coupled with its triangle-shaped rear fuselage uh, reflects the sun's rays higher in the sky than any aircraft that was, you know, known at the time, you know, was able to fly. And so again, it's going to understandably cause alarm. 20 you know, years into the American jet age in the mid-1960s, fears of unidentified flying objects continued to shape cultural thinking and spawn industries by then millions of Americans did correctly believe that various factions inside the U.S. government were actively engaged in cover-ups regarding UFOs. However, uh, it appears that they were covering up their own technology, not extraterrestrial technology. By May 1963, there were five working ox carts uh, test flying around Area 51, on May 24th, 1963, a pilot named Ken Collins, codenamed Iceman, it's a badass nickname, uh, has a failure while on a test mission. He has to eject from his A-12, and the multi, multi, multi-million dollar plane is destroyed in a crash. Well, local ranchers find Collins uh, walking down the road after witnessing the crash. Until that moment, no civilian without a top security clearance had ever laid eyes on the ox cart. And then Collins has strict orders to keep it that way. So he'd been briefed over what to do in this kind of situation and give a cover story. Uh, and, and he does. He tells uh, the ranchers that his aircraft was an F-105 fighter jet, had a nuclear weapon on board, and then told him, you know, uh, <laughs> that this is not good. You know, basically, that uh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that nuke. And, uh, and the men just tell him that if he wants to ride, they better jump in quick because they're not staying around, you know, this uh, Wendover area for long. Uh, then they drop him off at a payphone. Uh, he had a dime and a scrap of paper with a phone number in his pocket of his flight suit, just in, just in case if this scenario were to happen. So he uses his dime, makes a, makes, a, makes a phone call to his superiors and tells him the bad news. Uh, then in July 1963, uh, an A-12 pilot, Oxcart pilot, becomes the first person to hit Mach 3 speeds over 2,300 miles per hour. In 1964, more nuclear testing occurs around Area 51. Uh, between September 1961 and December 1964, a record-breaking 162 bombs are exploded at the Nevada test site inside underground tunnels and shafts. Nearly half of those explosions result in the accidental release of radioactivity into the atmosphere. Beginning in 1968, thanks to CIA documents remaining classified, what goes on at Area 51 starts to get very murky. President Lyndon B. Big Dick Jumbo Johnson uh, has declared for the A-12 Oxcart project to be terminated as of January 1st, 1968, but supposedly the new man in charge of Area 51, CIA Director Richard Helms, convinces him to use the planes to gather surveillance photos in Vietnam. Now, we, we, if that name sounds familiar, uh, we learned about Helms in the Project MK Ultra Suck. He's the guy that ordered the MK Ultra documents to be destroyed in 1973. So he, he also may have continued this program. They, made it just, they might have just made it seem like it was being discontinued, but not. It's believed by many that the A-12 spy plane program and later versions of it uh, not only continued in the 70s, but continued to this day. Uh, supposedly, once the war on terror began in 2001, after the September 11th attacks, uh, flight testing new drones, new, very sophisticated drones, uh, you know, at Area 51 and Area 52, uh, now uh, we're moving full speed ahead. And, and since the official record ends in 1968, so does today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. 
So now that we know the major highlights of what we were able to piece together from, from leaked documents, declassified documents and interviews from former Area 51 employees, uh, let's suck into the conspiracies that surround Area 51, the, the unofficial story. But before we do that, um, a, a quick word from today's sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you today by Rayard and Mother's Sexy Family Lingerie Boutique. Uh, it's the world's first and longest running lingerie store designed specifically for mothers and sons. At Rayard and Mother's Sexy Family Lingerie Boutique, you can help buy lingerie for your mom or have your mom help you buy lingerie for you and your sexy lady. Now, when your lady asks, how do you know I would like this? You know what to say. Mama told me you'd love it. Or if she's offended and says, what made you think I'd wear this? You can blame mom. Sorry, mama said she thought it would be right up your alley. Rayard and Mother's Sexy Family Lingerie Boutique has body stockings, corsets, garter belts, thigh highs, lace harness teddies, mini dresses, cup bras, schoolgirl outfits, French-made costumes, fishnet tube dresses, and mama's favorite, crotchless teddies. Order today at Rayard and Mother's Sexy Family Lingerie Boutique dot dry heave slash I'm sorry, and you'll receive free shipping on your first order and a 50% coupon to their sister store, Rayard and Father's Sexy Family Sex Toy Shop. Free daddy's butt plug on all orders over $100. Rayard's family lingerie and sex toys, keeping parents overly involved in their adult children's sex lives since 1946. Okay, so uh, let's just all pretend that that never happened and move back into Area 51 uh, alien conspiracies. A lot of today's Area 51 conspiracies can be traced back to the claims of one man, Geraldo Rivera. Geraldo Michael Rivera, host of the talk show Geraldo that ran from 87 to 98, he claimed that he went undercover, getting employed at a custodial firm hired to clean Area 51 hangars. He was able to sneak a hidden camera in and capture some grainy footage of what may or may not be extraterrestrial life. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, Geraldo did not sneak in Area 51. A former pro wrestler, the ultimate warrior, did. No, uh, most Area 51 conspiracies can be traced back to Robert Scott Lazar. Bobby Scott, Bobino Scottino. But did Bobby Scott... Uh, even worked there. I'm going I'm to tell you his tale, and then you can decide. In May of 1989, this is this is the story where where most of today's Area 51 lore originates. May of 1989, a soft-spoken, bespeckled 30-year-old native Floridian, already suspicious to me, from Florida, a lot of kooky shit comes out, of her, uh, named Robert Scott uh, Lazar, appears on Eyewitness News in Las Vegas with an investigative reporter named George Knapp and reveals Area 51 secrets to the world at large. Out of the tens of thousands of people who had worked at Area 51 over the years, Lazar was the only individual to break the oath of the silence in such a public way. Now, Bob Lazar claims he wound up at Area 51 after getting a job referral by nuclear, or from nuclear physicist Dr. Edward Teller. Teller co-invented the world's most powerful weapon of mass destruction, the thermonuclear bomb, tested many incarnations of his diabolical creation uh, just a few miles over the hill from Area 51, in, in the numbered sectors that make up the Nevada test site. Now, I say claimed because Nellis Air Force Base, who currently administers Area 51, as well as the Los Alamos National Laboratories, another place Lazar claimed to have worked as a scientist, both deny Lazar worked for them. Now, Lazar claims that his records of his employment uh, as a scientist were erased to discredit him. And uh, his in to Area 51, this Dr. Teller, a man who was a noted nuclear physicist, uh, when questioned about Lazar, didn't recall meeting him ever. He did say, I probably met him. I, I might have said to somebody, I met him and, and I liked him after I met him, uh, if I liked him, but I don't remember him. To me, that quote sounds like a, a, like a nice guy, 
uh, a nice guy who doesn't want to hurt the feelings of someone he may have met, someone who is claiming to have met him, but who has no idea who this person is. Well, supposedly, in December 1988, Lazar is brought to Area 51 for the first time. According to Lazar, the first day he's at Area 51, he's driven on a bumpy dirt road for approximately 20, 30 minutes before arriving at a mysterious complex of hangars built into the side of a mountain, somewhere on the outskirts of this dry, groomed lake bed. Well, Lazar uh, was stationed in a section called S4, he said, and he was processed through a security system far more intense than the one he'd been subjected to a little earlier at Area 51's primary base. So now he's in like the secret part of the secret base. He's in the most secret part of the secret base. Uh, He signed one document allowing his home number, uh, telephone number to be monitored, another one to waive his constitutional rights. Uh, Then he was shown a flying saucer. Of course he was. Uh, And he was told it would be his job to reverse engineer its anti-gravity propulsion system. Mm -hmm. Out of all the scientists in the world, uh, this guy, this this guy no one's heard of, uh, Bobby Lazar. He's 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 gonna he's gonna be the one to do it. Out of everyone, out of everyone, old uh, Bobby Scott, old Bobino Scottino, he's the guy to, to get her done. And uh, so he he he's you know he told this, and uh, he's told that there are nine saucers at S four. Uh, according to Lazar, over the following winter, he he works at S four mostly during the night, for a total of only approximately ten days. Uh, he claimed that the work was intense but sporadic. Sometimes he worked like one night a week. He never, he never told anybody about what he's doing at S4, not even his wife, Tracy, or his best friend, Gene Huff. <laughs> uh, one night in early March of 1989, Lazar is being escorted down a hallway inside S4 by two armed guards when he was ordered to keep his eyes forward. Instead, curiosity seizes Bob Lazar. He glances sideways through a small nine-by-nine-inch window, and for a brief moment, he says he saw inside an unmarked room and sees a small gray alien with a large head standing between two men dressed in white coats. Mm, okay. Uh huh. So I'm having <laughs> I'm having a lot of problems with this story, and 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 it bothers me that this guy is like heralded in certain UFO kind of you know uh, circles, like he's like the guest of honor at big conventions. It's like just think just think about this story for a second. Out of all the scientists <laughs> that they could possibly uh, find, they they find this guy that I'll I'll soon fill you in that basically no one's heard of. And, and, and okay, let's and let's say let's say let's say he is heard of. Let's say he is a noted scientist. Why why would he be brought in and then just like only like like he's immediately like, hey man, your job is to do like the most important shit military wise that anyone's ever done. Figure out how to reverse engineer this anti gravity system. Figure out how to like have our you know our our military flying machines not need gravity. But then we're only going to let you work every once in a while. We're like, you're going to work like one day this week and then another day this week. That doesn't make any fucking sense. Like just give him a normal working schedule. And then also I love the detail of, okay, we're going to walk, <laughs> we're going to walk you down this hallway. And instead of just fucking blindfolding you, which would be the easiest and obvious thing to do. If you don't want somebody to see something, if it's really important for them not to see, I don't know, a fucking alien. Instead, you don't do that. Oh, no, no, no. You don't do that. You just tell them, hey, man, direct orders, just uh, eyes ahead. Don't look to the side. That is, ah, that's dumb. Okay. Anyway, he says this encounter is a turning point for him. He says something shifted in him and he felt, and he felt he could no longer bear the secret of the flying saucers, uh, what was an alien. He, he, he felt compelled to share what he'd learned with his wife and his friend. And then he breaks his Area 51 secrecy oath. And then he claims that, um, he, so he knew the schedule. For flying saucer test flights uh, being conducted out on Groom Lake, where they had the test range runway, and and he suggests to his wife Tracy and his buddy Gene, 
Uh, and this other guy named John Lear, uh, who is a committed ufologist and the son of the man who invented the Learjet, Bill, Bill Lear. Uh, oh, man, I'm sure Bill, before he passed, was super proud of his son becoming a fucking wackadoodle ufologist. Um, well, Lazar claims that they, they brought uh, high-powered binoculars and a video camera, waited, and then watched the UFOs fly around. And by the way, I'm not against UFOs. I'm actually a believer in UFOs. I just can't stand some of these stories. Okay, so Lazar's wife and friends, uh, they see what appeared to be a brightly lit saucer rise up from above the mountains that hid the Area 51 base from view. They watch it hover and land. Uh, the following Wednesday, they return to the site, and then they make a third visit on April 5th, 1989, uh, this time down a long road leading into the you know the base called the Groom Lake Road, which, which ended in them being discovered by Area 51 security guards, detained and arrested. And now check this out. And then, so, okay, he, he gets, he brings his wife and two people, two buddies into a highly classified base, gets detained, gets arrested. This happens one night on April 5th. And then he says he returns to work the next day, like nothing happened. <laughs> and then supposedly he's arrested by someone the next day, uh, um, Oh no, 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 I'm not arrested. Yeah, so he's supposedly arrested the night before, returns to work the next day, quickly released somehow, then just goes back to work on on uh the following morning. This makes zero sense. Like for me, I just I just call bullshit on the whole story. Like get the fuck out of here. Uh really? You take take the take the top secret maximum security clearance aspect out of the story. Just imagine getting arrested by someone who works for your company. Like imagine for whatever reason you sneak into your company's offices or headquarters one night and then you get arrested. For trespassing, for you're not supposed to be there at that time, at least, or or you bring people that aren't supposed to be there, like just into the, he's breaking your company, and and then you head back to work the next day, as if nothing happened. When has that ever happened, ever? Like as, as if word of your arrest, when you're caught by another fucking employee, is not going to reach your boss, you know? Like there's never going to be like, uh, hey Bob, what are you doing? Well, just heading over to work on the spaceship. Why, why do you ask? Did, did you by chance forget that you were arrested last night? Oh, uh, you heard about that? Uh, yeah, Bob, I heard. You were arrested here, Bob. I was talking about it with the head of security in the break room a few minutes ago. We can't believe you showed up. There's not even 100 employees here, Bob. How did you think I wouldn't notice? Okay, and if you would have been arrested, they would have realized, like the night before, that he was an employee when they checked his ID, and they would have taken away his security clearance. I mean, this is supposed to be the most highly secured military base in the United States, and, and they don't know the dude they just arrested is one of the guys who, who is assigned the most important task of reverse engineering the UFO anti-gravitational technology. Like, give me a break. But he's sticking to the story. Uh, Bob claims he was met by supervisor Dennis Marani, or Mariani, who informed Lazar that he would, he would not be going out to the Groom Lake uh, that day as planned. Instead, he would be driven to Indian Springs Air Force Base. Uh, the guard who caught him the night before helicoptered in from the Area 51 perimeter confirms that Bob Lazar was one of the four people snooping in the woods the night before, and then he's told he's fired. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, I bet. Uh, hey, Bob, look, uh, you've been really good at figuring out the whole UFO technology, but we were very clear uh, when we hired you to to work random days that make no sense, uh, you know, that this is highly classified information. So while it wouldn't make more sense to court-martial you and put you in prison for fucking treason, uh, we're going to let you go. We're just going to let you go and hope you don't talk about this on TV. Well, after getting fired, Lazar became convinced he was being followed by government agents, and then he claimed someone shot out his tire when he's driving to the airport. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Uh, so let me get this straight. So they weren't smart enough to initially realize that the guy they arrested working at the place they were arresting him for trespassing on, uh, the guy they were so unconcerned with this guy when they just let him go after firing him, but now they're shooting his tires out. 
Okay. Well, fearing for his life, Bob decides to go public with his story. And then Lazar's TV appearance in November of 1999 broke the station's record for viewership, but the original audience is limited to people in the Vegas area. It would take months for Lazar's story to go global. The man responsible for that happening was a Japanese-American mortician living in Los Angeles named Norio uh, Haikawa. Because you know what? Because why not? Why not? <laughs> why not introduce a Japanese mortician to this wacky little story? Uh, Hayakawa, uh, here's Lazar's story on a late night radio show airing in Los Angeles. I'm guessing it's probably Art Bell's AM Coast to Coast. Having no television experience, Hayakawa contacts a Japanese magazine called Mu, renowned for its popular stories about UFOs. He'd later say Mu got in touch with me right away and said they were interested. And then Nippon TV was interested as well. Well, in a matter of weeks, Japan's leading TV station had dispatched an eight-man crew from Tokyo to Los Angeles. Hayakawa takes them to Las Vegas to do an interview with Bob Lazar, who convinces them to try and film some of the flying saucer activity at Area 51. So he must not be that concerned about the government following him. Uh, Hayakawa asked Lazar if he, if he would take them to the lookout point on Tikaboo Mountain off Highway 375. He does decline. He is a little scared. He tells them exactly where to go, though. And then they say they went to the place and set up their equipment. Lo and behold, just after sundown, a bright orangish light came rising up off the land near Groom Lake. Uh, Hayakawa showed the footage to the magazine's bosses in Japan who were thrilled. The TV station had paid Lazar a little over $5,000 for a two-hour segment about his experience there at 51. And then the program is aired on primetime TV in Japan and 30 million Japanese viewers turn in, uh, tune in. And then Lazar's story, uh, after it hits Japanese airwives, goes worldwide. And then people start scrutinizing his story, looking into his life, and, well, ah, that's not good for Bob's credibility. First off, Lazar claims that he had degrees from MIT and Caltech. Nope. Neither institution has a record of his attendance. Stanton Friedman, prominent ufologist, uh, actual retired nuclear physicist, uh, was able to verify that Lazar took electronics courses in the late 1970s, not at MIT, not at Caltech, but at Pierce Junior College, a little different, which is slightly different. Uh, it's in L.A. And, and at the same – he took these classes at the same time. He was supposedly attending MIT in Massachusetts. So I, I don't think there's ever been someone who's simultaneously went to Pierce Junior College and also MIT. Uh, he further determined that Lazar had graduated from high school in the bottom third of his class, bottom third, and that the only science course he took was chemistry. So other ufologists are now calling this guy out. Not a good sign. Uh, the Stanton, by the way, open to believing in some pretty extreme stuff. Uh, you know, he, he's he's not a, a a real skeptic. He's a big believer in the Roswell crash actually being an alien spaceship crash. Now, if you listen to my alien extravaganza suck, you know that I don't believe that. Uh, I came to the conclusion that it was, in fact, a weather balloon. But uh, even Stanton, even the guy who believes in aliens at Roswell, doesn't believe aliens were taken from Roswell to Area 51, uh, which, which makes no sense, by the way, because Area 51 wasn't a fucking thing until 1955. Roswell happened in 1947. So how was the alien taken to a place that didn't exist yet? Uh, anyway, Stan believes that Lazar graduated in the bottom third of his class, you know, which would certainly exclude him from MIT. You know, MIT usually takes like the, the probably like the top one or two percent, and and even out of those, you know, t they take people who have taken a lot of science courses. Uh, Friedman believes that Lazar lied about attending Caltech. Um, yeah, no, no, no professors remember Lazar. He was not in any yearbooks. There was no records of him attending. He, he could not remember the year he even obtained his master's there. He was a member of no professional bodies. Uh, and MIT has confirmed there's no way to expunge someone from their records. Numerous other researchers not been able to find any records supporting his claims of having received degrees. Uh, even worse, no researcher can find anyone who claims to have even seen him ever at either place. One man does claim he tracked down a scientist who worked at Los Alamos Laboratories with Bob. 
supposedly. This guy, Jeremy Corbel, uh, a documentary filmmaker uh, who I've watched videos of on YouTube. He has several films in the works, one of them with Lazar, about Lazar. Uh, the man behind the, uh, he's the man behind the website, extraordinarybeliefs.com. And he says that he used some innovative research techniques to find a witness willing to go on record to say that they were uh, working with Bob at, you know, one of the facilities he claims. Little conflict of interest here, though. The, the dude who makes aliens have landed type documentaries, the man who's trying to sell a film about shit being found at, you know, Area 51 with uh, with Bob Lazar is saying that he magically has proven that Lazar is telling the truth. Very convenient. Uh, Corbell says, in researching Lazar's claims, he used software that can run automated tasks over the internet to search Facebook for keywords. Uh, his bot found him in a comment in a Facebook group from a man who said his neighbor claimed to have worked with Lazar. And then Corbell got in contact with this man who eventually got him in touch with the neighbor who turns out to be a legitimate physicist that Corbell was able to confirm did work at Los Alamos Laboratories. Uh, Corbell asked the physicist, this man supposedly named Dr. Robert Krangel, if he would be willing to go public with his claims. The guy said yes. And now there's audio, no video, but audio uh, recording of Dr. Krangel uh, confirming he worked with Bob Lazar. But here's the thing. I have Googled every variation of Dr. Robert Krangel I can think of. Dr. Krangel, MIT, uh, Dr. Krangel, Los Alamos, uh, Dr. Krangel, Area 51, uh, you know, uh, just Dr. Krangel, you know, like whatever, Robert Krangel, Bob Krangel. I even tried alternate spellings of his last name, Kringle, <laughs> nothing. The only shit that comes up is the Corbell audio interview posted in 2015 or articles on various ufology type websites citing or embedding this one interview. It all just comes back to the same interview every single time. Beyond fishy. Do you understand how rare it is in 2018 to not show up on the web? Uh, just to test this, I Googled my about to turn 86-year-old grandfather, Ward Hall, a man who has never posted a single thing online, a man who has literally never owned a computer. He's never had a laptop. He's never had a desktop. He's never had an iPad. Uh, he has no internet service at his house. He does have an iPhone that he only knows how to work the weather app on and, and make phone calls. He doesn't know how to text. He's never had an email address ever. He's never had a social media account. He doesn't even really understand what social media is. He knows I have a podcast, but he doesn't know what a podcast is. The last time we talked, he asked me how my podcast writing job was going. He asked me how the writing was going. Apparently, he thinks I just you know email you guys shit every week. And info came up about my grandpa online immediately. Whitepages.com, familytree.com, uh, or excuse me, familytreenow.com. Uh, even an obituary reference, which fucking kind of pissed me off. Look, I know he's old, internet, but he's not dead yet, you fucking bloodthirsty jackals. Uh, but nothing on Dr. Robert Krangel, a uh, supposed important nuclear scientist. Uh-huh. If any one of you listeners gave me your last name, or excuse me, your name, company you worked at, title, like, you know, doctor, if you have one in the school you got a degree from, something would come up every time. Something. Uh, I did find a Bob Krangel, an IT specialist living in Dallas, looks to be about 60 years old, and guess what's not on his resume? Anything we're talking about today. Definitely not MIT. Uh, he lists his education, which I love, as the school of hard knocks. And there's more problems with Bob's credibility. In 1990, Lazar was arrested for aiding and abetting a prostitution ring. Uh, this was reduced to felony pandering to which he pleaded guilty. He was ordered to do 150 hours of community service, stay away from brothels and ordered to undergo psychotherapy. So he, he doesn't seem mentally stable. And, and this supposed scientist, uh, was listed as being self, a self-employed film processor on bankruptcy documents. He doesn't hold up to even being remotely credible. You know, I mean, you, you could, you could do the whole, like, this is what the government wants you to think. They've erased all his records around, but come on, 
How do you explain not one person that we can verify as existing, verifying any of his claims? The government is not able in the information age to reach everybody around someone, I don't think. Uh, other lesser known ufologists have also made Area 51 alien claims. You know, there's claims of like, that's where the moon landing was faked in the Area 51 uh, facility. Th- those are, those ones are so ridiculously not credible. They're not even worth sharing. Like they're com- like a hundred percent complete maniac wackadoodle. Um, there is a recent one, a recent kind of a uh, fun claim of uh, Area 51 alien stuff made by a man uh, supposedly named Robert Miller. Now, Robert claims he was selected to be a pilot in a secret government program at the Area 51 Groom Lake facility. And when he arrived on his first day for work in the middle of the night, he was met by the men in black. He was soon informed he'd be a test pilot on a new aircraft reverse engineered from an alien craft that crashed in 1947. Of course, the Roswell saucer. Uh, in a 19, uh, or two, excuse me, 2017, you know, uh, I would say interview, but I guess it's more of like a, it's more of like a fucking wackadoodle TED talk. <laughs> Just a video of him with a weird spacey backdrop and the worst sound ever. Like if you think today's episode sounds bad, it is, however it comes out, it's a million times better than the sound quality of this thing. It's like this weird shitty green screen space backdrop. And uh, he says, I do remember they brought me inside the craft and up to the pilot seat. There was only room for one person in the giant craft. I looked around the cockpit and only saw a seat, no joystick, no steering wheel, no other controls. There was, however, a helmet that I guess conveniently fit a human being. They told me the craft was controlled telepathically. I was told to imagine the craft starting to float off the ground, but it didn't work. Instead, I had to imagine that I was the craft, like part of it. And I began thinking to myself floating off the ground, and I felt the vibrations. I was 500 feet off the ground. Then the vibrations of the engine stopped. There was no ejection button on the craft. I was effectively helpless. It was plunging towards the ground and I went unconscious. The next thing I knew, I was in the hospital. A man in a black suit came in and explained to me what had happened. He said right before the craft hit the ground, it just went boom, disappeared. Then then he said the man in black told him this. Then in the middle of the night... They heard a loud crashing noise outside. The craft had crashed in the same spot. The scientists had hypothesized that the craft had time traveled. Man, oh, Robert is really making me want to do some LSD right now. Like, man, what a fun trip you went on. Sounds amazing. What an adventure. Men in Black are talking to him. Of course he did. Uh, if you're a new listener, we just did a suck on the Men in Black. Uh, and Men in Black lore eh, doesn't hold up very well under scrutiny. Um, so who is this Robert Miller character? Well, out of, out of all the qualified pilots in the United States, why was he chosen to fly a flying saucer? Well, you can, you can watch the video if you want where he discloses all of his secrets on YouTube. I'm going to put a link in today's episode description because it is very entertaining. Uh, Miller claims he was selected to be a pilot in the secret government program at Area 51. Uh, he said his father worked at Area 51. He said his dad was an aerospace engineer and that he grew up in a small southern Nevada town. Well, his dad worked at the base. There's, there's no record of this that I can find anywhere online. Uh, said his dad worked late hours and could never tell the family he did for his job. Says his dad taught him to fly at an early age and that he was a licensed pilot at 15. Says he went to the Marine Corps as a pilot. And then, uh, you know, his own quotes, he says he became one of the top pilots in the Marine, in the Marines, excuse me. Uh, and then at age 28, even though he's a top pilot, he decides to leave the Corps, but then gets a letter that says classified, dressed to him. And finds out he's been chosen to be a test pilot at the Groom Lake Test Facility, a.k.a. Area 51. Then he talks about being taken to the base in the middle of the night, about meeting the men in black who take him deep underground inside the base, lock him in a tiny room. <laughs> they lock him in a tiny room uh, with a desk, a bed, and some weights for exercise. Well, that's awful. 
And then they tell him he'll be living there for two months. Uh, and then they lock him in. And then he and then he reads a manual on the desk that says a bunch of shit about Area 51, including that the, the only way to get one of the 1,200 classified positions on the base is to be recommended by an insider. So he assumes his now retired dad must have, you know, given him a reference, which it makes no sense. You know, <laughs> you just can invite your son to be locked into an underground room. Then he gets into stuff I already told you about with the flying saucer, the stuff he'd said earlier. Well, well just like Dr. Robert Krangle earlier, I can't find shit online about this guy. Uh, about this top Marine Corps pilot, Robert Miller, other than this one video. And just visually, he does not pass the smell test for me. Um, <laughs> I watched this guy and I would not buy anything this guy's selling. He reminds me of a thousand other bullshit artists I've met before. Some dude desperate for attention. Uh, you know, I, I've had the privilege of meeting a lot of active and former military and, and he doesn't remind me of any of them. He, he does remind me of a lot of wannabes who, you know, share a bunch of weird war stories that you know they're just fucking made up. You know that they're never in the service. He, he, he doesn't seem to be even remotely credible to me. Uh, I wouldn't buy a car or life insurance from him. I, w- I wouldn't give him a ride if I saw him hitchhiking. Uh, if he started talking to me at a bar, I'd pretend to get a phone call and, uh, and just, to, just to get the hell away from him. He, he looks like the kind of guy who would knock on your door and then try to sell you some fucking weird vitamins or some shit. You know, when, when my kids were younger, there was no way I would leave them at a daycare if he was working there. He actually reminds me uh, uh, of an older version of the dude uh, I based my pathological liar stand-up bit on, the Rick bit, years ago. Slap a salmon, punch a bear. You know, easy, Robert Miller, easy. But that's just what I think. There's a lot of comments uh, under his interview video uh, that has almost a million views, and and most of them disagree with me. And let's find out what the idiots of the internet think about Robert Miller. Idiots of the internet. And, and again, I do apologize for the uh, for the sound quality and my voice. Just uh, ugh, not, not, nothing I can do. So ho- hopefully I'm intelligible today. Uh, under Robert's video, uh, one of the first to post is Gabriel Soto. Uh, he posts something that I was thinking. He says, uh, they teach you how to use an alien spaceship a day before you use it. Okay, very believable. That's one of his claims. He gets taken there one day, very next day, they're putting the helmet on and letting him fly it with mind control. Appreciate the sarcasm, Gabriel. Noted and enjoyed. Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I can't get my throat to clear. User Hindu Kush doesn't appreciate it and posts, uh, yeah, because they don't want any bullshit. Are you fucking stupid? Not everyone's brain works the same. Uh, no, uh, Hindu Kush. Uh, Gabriel Soto isn't stupid. He's logical. You, on the other hand, first impression is that you're a real dum-dum, right? What are you talking? No, it doesn't make any sense what they're saying. Well, well, Mooney's Urban Farm also doesn't like Gabriel's logic. He posts, Gabriel Soto, that would be standard procedure for the highest security clearance. Remember, he was not just one of the best. He was one of the best of the best. Fly at an early pilot. No, fly at, a, at early age pilot by 15 <laughs> and in the Marine Corps. Best of the best. Uh, yeah, so he says, uh, you know, Urban Farm. No evidence of that. Do you just accept everything that people say at face value? Man, you are a, a salesman's dream. Just, you know, just Mooney, I want you to take a look at this uh, Aquamarine 1993 Geo Metro hatchback. Uh, stick shift. No frills. Sure, it has over 350,000 miles on it. And if someone rear-ends you, you may explode. However, it is the fastest car on the market. Barely street legal. It'll do 500 miles an hour in second gear. Michael Jordan was the original owner before he sold it to Tom Brady, before he sold it to Wiz Khalifa, who shared it with Kanye West. It's valued at $3 million, but I'm going to let you have it for 50 Gs. It is the best of the best of the best, wrapped in a blanket of best, stuck in a best hole, and then eaten by a best monster. Let's sign some paperwork. Uh, How do you know what standard operating procedure would be? Vegas odds put you uh, at a greater chance of living in your mom's basement 
than than having top level of uh, you know security clearance, some top level. There's no way you know what you're talking about. Spence Remix also does not care for Gabriel's logic. He posts Gabriel Soto. There is not much to it. LOL. Put a helmet on and think. That's it. What's so hard about that? Some people are just ignorant. Yeah, some people are like you. Spence, Spence Remix, you fucking ignorant. Oh my god. I love, I love, it's easy. You just put a helmet on and think. The men in black were very clear about that. Okay, well, that's true. Then why, then why go through the trouble of bringing in some off-base pilot, you dumb shit? They have a base full of people capable of flying the most sophisticated spy planes in the world. Think about the A-12. Uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, people already operating out of Area 51. If you just put the helmet on and think, well, why, well like, why didn't one of those guys do it? You know, uh, you need a helmet that you can put on that allows you to critically think for the first time in your entire life. I, please, I gotta hope you're a kid. Please don't be a grown up who has kids and is raising them to be like you and who is voting and stuff. Uh, and then after, you know, uh, about about 15 more people just pile on and make fun of Gabriel for being logical because this part of the internet has become a giant pile of virtual turds. Uh, just just uh, then, oh, then, this is awesome. A wackadoodle gibberish battle breaks out uh, in the thread between uh, VO Vortex and Cy Avabel. <laughs> I love it. I love it when people argue over something that no one can prove, like get into a heated debate. But And, and when both people act as if what they know is common knowledge and it's complete gibberish. Uh, Vortex starts by posting, actually, there are many dimensions, others further, are time, not space as hypothesized. It is impossible, it's very hard to read because of the weird sentence structure. It is impossible for a third dimensional character such as us to view a fourth dimensional character and etc. <laughs> If the Roswell activity did happen and they were from another dimension, the universe as we now will cease to exist. Uh, okay. Uh, incredible. Uh, complete and utter insanity presented as fact. Um, hello. Dimensions are further, people. They're further, whatever that means. You can't be third dimensional and talk to fourth dimensional characters. Our universe would delete itself. Well, Cy Avabel doesn't agree with Vortex's mumbo-jumbo and posts, VO Vortex, hey man, all Eileen's aren't 4D. I think he means aliens. <laughs> hey man, all aliens aren't 4D. Some use 4D device to control it. And the Roswell Eileen group made, ex- <laughs> made exchange with our government for copper. Copper so important for aliens. But we can't normally see 3D aliens, Eileen's, because they use telekinesis and appear as humans for our eyes. I love, <laughs> I love the attitude. Hey, man. Hey, man. Hey, look, bro. bro. Hey, bro. Bro. Aliens need copper. Can we at least agree on that? I mean, we do all know that aliens love copper. That's one-on-one alien shit, man. Copper, of course. But they're not all 4D. You have to see that. Some use a 4D device. Here, come on. Just, just read this barely legible 500-page manifesto that I wrote during my last meth binge. Uh, well, VO Vortex comes back with an even greater level of madness. <laughs> Same. Cy Avabel, hi. I wanted to remind you that... <laughs> I, love, I love the logic some people have. Hi, I wanted to remind you that it is physically impossible for aliens to have faces. 
because they did not evolve on earth. What in the fuck are these people talking about? <laughs> I wanted to remind you, like as if they've talked about this before and he's, he's, t- he's tired of him not remembered. Dude, we've talked about this so many times. Aliens on faces. He says, our DNA is stimulated to support our habitat and our star. If you bring an alien onto earth, its DNA could be similar or completely different. That doesn't really make a good case. Listen, buddy, if you bring an alien here, yeah, this could work or not could work. It could be anything. Uh, He says, there is a fish with a transparent head here on earth. Its DNA is about 25% difference than ours is DNA. If aliens came to earth, we would not stand a chance at all. If they have the amount of intelligence to create a spaceship that can leave its home solar system and get to ours in, in a matter of time, we can be enslaved right now. I love that like they don't follow the point that the person previous to them made. They just have like preloaded wackadoodle thoughts that they've been thinking about in the seclusion <laughs> of their bedroom or basement or attic or fucking cage. I don't know where these people, where these people live, but they've just been mulling this shit over in their, in their, you know, poorly functioning brains <laughs> just over and over. And then they just wait for like kind of an in to throw it. Like he's been, th- he's been thinking about the no faces shit for years. And then it, it doesn't really pertain to this conversation like at all. And then he acts as if it does. Hey man, remember about the faces thing? No, no one remembers because no one has ever talked about that other than you. Um, <laughs> these, I love that these two clowns really appear to be serious about this shit. Listen, Cy, before we go further down the wrong path, let me remind you, for starters, that aliens don't have faces. Yes, of course they need copper. I fucking, yeah, I know that. You didn't even have to say that. That's insulting. You had to remind me. Look, I didn't just beam down from a spaceship yesterday. However, they can't have faces. So, I mean, if you think about it that way, uh, we could be enslaved any day. Well, Cy Avabel finds Vortex's logic laughable, which would make uh, me like him if he wasn't equally full of shit. He posted VO Vortex, LOL. So you assume anything not on Earth don't have faces. <laughs> Actually, Eileen's are the one made us. And currently, there are about 14 Eileen's groups on Earth. Not all Eileen's. <laughs> Are bad or good. Every group have their own needs. Example, Greg's. They lost reproduce system. Cause of radiation. And they here for our DNA. Since it's some what matched them. Greys are hostile race. <laughs> and there are other races who protect us. But as you said, we can't see Eileen's. They just appear humans to our eyes because of telelessness power. Which makes brain see them as they want. Bro. Aliens made us. They made us. Come on, man. There's 14 different kinds. They all have faces, kind of. They have telekinesis faces onto themselves for mating DNA. Please, please read the 800-page blog post I wrote when I was involuntarily committed to a mental health facility. Uh, And then these jackasses just keep at it. And both of them, both of them need to stop watching alien videos. And they need to start, they need to start watching TED Talks. Uh, They need to take some online courses just from any place. Any place that is somewhat legitimate institution of learning. Uh, a knit and Sony posts, he's definitely truth. I feel because of body language, and I don't know why. Uh, okay. God, man, son of a... These people are... These people... Ah, I bet you most of these people can fucking vote. 
Oh my God, think about this person, how their brain works. No evidence needed. No need to look at any of the claims. No need to Google uh, search, you know, any of the credibility of any of this stuff. He has the right body language. So, you know, everything he says has to be true. Uh, for a second, I thought user Mandoon was not a moron, but then I made it to the end of his post and I realized I was sadly mistaken. He posts, he's so full of shit. You can tell he's fake. He even say it create wormholes, which allow you to travel near the speed of light. <laughs> Surely it would allow you to travel faster. Absolute rubbish. So much nonsense. So many arrogant fools who shit on each other for believing in nonsense then reveal that their truth is equally unverifiable nonsense. Just a cacophony of absurdity, right? This guy's full of shit, man. Clearly, UFOs fly faster than the speed of light. I mean, come on. I mean, they, they fucking need copper. They'd use the copper to fly faster than the speed of light. And, they, and that's why I don't have faces. Everybody knows this. Okay, one more. User TMAC uh, lets me exit the thread uh, on a nice laugh. He posts... His story isn't bullshit, and it's given me the courage to tell my story. In 1996, I tried mushrooms. I also saw some crazy shit. That's all I can remember. <laughs> oh, perfect, T-Mac. Well done, sir. Well done. I, I feel like you and I would get along beautifully. Uh, and that is all I have for this week's uh, very entertaining, in my opinion, Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. All right, so what's going on at Area 51, man? Who the hell knows? It's top secret, and it should be. Our government, uh, you know, keeping secrets does not bother me one bit. It's a scary world. Talk to somebody who's been to Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. You know, I have. I've talked to tons of, of soldiers and former soldiers, uh, you know, and also a fair amount of immigrants from the Middle East during my travels. Uh, you know, I talked to, um, Lindsay and I actually had a great conversation with an Uber driver a while back uh, who his, him and his family just moved from Iraq a few years ago. And it was interesting. He had a very like uh, um, interesting immigration stance. He was like, "Don't man, we gotta, we gotta fucking not let too many people in." He just talked about life being hell because of just of all the terrorism and all the the, the chaos in the country he lived in. You know, I've talked to uh, Africans from various war torn African nations. Talked to people from unstable Eastern European nations. Uh, I, I've read too many articles, watched too many interviews, and documentaries from horrible living condition situations in Asia, South and Central America. You know, there are some truly terrible governments out there. Nations run by some really bad people, far worse than anything we deal with in America today, far worse. And it is in our best interest to weapon up and protect ourselves from the future possibility of some insane foreign regime trying to take what we have here. And, and to stay ahead of the enemy, yeah, you got to hide what you're working on. You know, revealing it is like playing poker and always showing the entire table your hand every time you make a bet. Try winning the World Series of Poker that way. A little harder to bluff if everyone else knows you have a king and, and a two of spades, and then the flop is ace, two, and three of diamonds. Or actually better, I guess, ace, three, and five of diamonds. You know, it's like, like is the government working on, on, a, on a secret weapon system now? You know, possibly. You know, if they're not working on them in Area 51, I, I hope they're working on them somewhere, because you can bet your ass some other countries are working on their secret weapons programs. Are there aliens and UFOs and men in black at Area 51? I mean, maybe, yeah, sure. I mean, maybe in the sense that I've never been there and I don't have access to the highest levels of classified documentation, so I can't say for certain, but I do not believe any of the current claims that there is. Everything I've looked into has been terrible, uh, at least to me personally. So, uh, so let's, re let's review the claims I've laid out today and actually look into one more interesting one in today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, Area 51 is created in 1955 in the middle of the Nevada desert. 
Uh, in addition to the Nevada test and training range where nuclear testing would start being carried out in the 1950s, it's created to develop and test spy planes. Number two, when the U-2 spy planes are flown for the first time in 1955, UFO sightings explode in the area around the base, which makes sense. The plane can fly up to 70,000 feet when most civilian aircraft is flying around 12,000 feet, when the nation's best declassified military planes are maxing out around 40,000 feet. To most eyes, the U-2 truly was an identified and unidentified flying object. Number three, the development of Area 51 was created in the wake of the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, which itself was created in the wake of the Manhattan Project. And it was this act that gave birth to the concept of born classified missions such as those carried out in Area 51. Missions and projects classified from the second they're created, allowing scientists to create new weapons, technology, etc. without any governmental committee approval, any oversight. So who the hell knows what's been created recently? The possibilities are almost endless. Number four, most Area 51 lore can be traced back to the testimony of one man, one wackadoodle, Robert Scott Lazar. He seems about as credible as Charles Manson to me. Number five, the highest profile, this is some new info, the highest profile Area 51 alien eyewitness testimony in recent years actually comes from former Blink-182 frontman Tom DeLonge, man current lead vocalist of Angels and Airwaves. He sold over 50 million albums worldwide with just Blink-182. You know, he sold, uh, you know, uh, over a million records and gotten tens of millions of streams with his new band. Super successful, highly talented, uh, talented, I don't know where that come from, (laughs) highly talented musician and really into UFOs. We did talk about some of his UFO beliefs in the Alien Extravaganza bonus episode back in, you know, early 2017. Well, he claims to have camped for a few nights out in the Nevada desert, close to Area 51, as close as he felt he could, you know, get without actually being arrested, Uh, I believe back in 2014, the articles I read were interviews from 2015, and in those, he refers to have taken his trip, quote, a little while ago. And he says, in numerous interviews, he says, we had two nights. We did one outside of a secret base called China Lake, and that was on the flight path to Area 51, which is known as Groom Lake. We camped out at the northern end of that, about 200 miles from the nearest staff location. We were above an area called Tonopah, which is where they test fly a lot of different things. So if you remember, I was talking about a person that was gathering all the footage for the congressional hearing. The person was telling me that the big belief, which I had corroborated by a university professor that was in the know, by the way, that the communication of this particular phenomenon is the frequency of thought. So part of communicating and making contact is shutting your mind down and being able to project your thoughts. Uh And this guy was telling me about it and this whole protocol for how it works. When we went out there the first night, we decided to run through this protocol where you project your thoughts. (laughs) So we decided to do it, and we were up mad late, but nothing happened. I kept telling the guys, if anything was going to happen, it would happen at 3 in the morning because that's the time when things like that happen. Don't ask me why. We put uh, about four logs on the fire, and everything is illuminated by the fire. We fell asleep around 1 or 2. I woke up around 3 a.m. Even, see, you're even right there. It's like, wait a minute. You know that something's crazy is going to happen at 3 a.m. You go out there for the sole purpose of doing that, and you can't fucking stay awake? Mm. Okay, but anyway, he says, my whole body felt like it had static electricity and I opened my eyes and the fire was still going and there's a conversation going on outside the tent. It sounded like there were about 20 people there talking and instantly my mind goes, okay, they're at our campsite. They're not here to hurt us. They're talking about shit, but I can't make out what they're saying, but they're working on something. Then I close my eyes and wake up and the fire is out and I have lost about three hours of lost time. Yeah, because you were fucking asleep, you lunatic. And he says, I get everyone up first thing in the morning and go, did anybody hear all the chatter last night? I couldn't move my body. I was stuck there. I couldn't hear anything. Mm, Sleep paralysis, maybe. And then one of the guys I was with goes, 
Yes, they were all around our tent. They were talking. I told you. And the other guy slept right through it. He had no idea what we were talking about. I would love it if that other guy that had no idea was talking in his sleep. Uh, and he said, it sounded like English, but you couldn't make out any of the words. I'm talking in his sleep. You, you knew you weren't threatened. You couldn't move your body, but you were very aware of the conversation going on for a period of time. Uh, okay, and, and that's his story. He also, to add context to his, his frame of mind in 2015, gave several interviews about how he was afraid for his life at this time thought that some secret government agency was going to try to snuff him out back in 2015. In, in another interview, he states, one time I remember bringing up a very specific craft that I believe we're building in secret to emulate the phenomena that our government has been observing for decades. So I started talking about the craft and its magnetic slide system and how it displaces over 89% of the mass of the ship, how it ionizes the engine, how it glows. I went through the whole thing and this engineer looks at me. This guy is 70 years old and he goes, you better be real fucking careful about what you're talking about. And I go, okay, so I'm close. And he goes, I'm not fucking kidding with you. You better be really fucking careful. And he calls me up the next day and he goes, I've had calls about you. If someone comes and asks you to get in their car, don't fucking get in that car. Well, it's 2018 and he's still talking about this shit. No one's got him. Uh, just like, just like all the people who make these type of claims, he hasn't died a mysterious death. So very skeptical, uh, skeptical. What is wrong? Skeptical of his claims. And again, uh, I find myself right now really wishing that I had time to, uh, enjoy dropping some quality LSD, right? Dropping some acid and seeing and feeling the kind of shit Tom is talking about. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right. So area 51 has been sucked. Uh, thank you, uh, Space Lizard Patreon supporters, for picking a fun episode for voting that one in to kick off August. You know I love some good wackadoodle shit. It's very entertaining. I like to mix that in with the dark stuff. It makes me laugh very hard. And it was fun to learn about the, uh, the official narrative regarding the history of, you know, the secret Cold War weapons, you know, kind of development uh, being carried out in the Nevada desert. Uh, big thanks to the Time Suck team once again. The High Priests of the Suck, Hardy Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar, Dobner. We've settled on his nickname now. He likes it. Uh, thanks also to the Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for doing his best to clean up the sound, uh, you know, back of the suck dungeon. When hopefully when, uh, you know, I'll hear it for the first time when you guys do, after he cleans it up, I'll be on a flight home. And, uh, hopefully this Holiday Inn Express recorded episode sounds a little better than it sounds to me now. Uh, thanks also to Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan, the Bitelixer team, Danger Brain, Eric Radiker, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. Special thanks again to OG Bojangles Research Department intern, uh, well, it's not intern, uh, Reacher Department, you know, uh, uh, Helper Outer, <laughs> Heather Knowledge Ninja Rylander for helping shape this suck. And uh, and a week from today, it's the 100th episode, man. 100 straight episodes of the suck. 100 straight weeks. I'm going to celebrate with the drunkest fuck suck on the Axeman of New Orleans. And uh, and some Coeur d'Alene time suckers, the wonderful owners of 10-6, the new uh, New Orleans-inspired cuisine, a uh, little restaurant made on, uh, it's on 4th Street, less than two miles from the suck dungeon. Man, they're going to be catering the evening's festivities. Lindsay and Joe are going to join me for the recording, which we're, uh, we're doing before I head out to Palm Beach on the evening of Wednesday the 8th. Uh, I'm sure my sponsors uh, you know, for this episode are going to be thrilled that I'm drunk. So the Axe Man, man, who was he? Well, I really don't know much yet. I haven't really started the research, but here's a little what I found. By August of 1918, the city of New Orleans, paralyzed by fear in the dead of night, the Axe Man of New Orleans broke into a series of Italian groceries, attacking the grocers and their families. Some he left wounded, four people he left dead. The attacks were vicious. Uh, Joseph Maggio, for example, had his skull fractured with his own axe, his throat cut with his razor. His wife, Catherine, had her throat cut. She asphyxiated 
from her, on her own blood as she bled out. The Axemen struck households in New Orleans from 1917 uh, to March 1919. Then the killer crossed the Mississippi River to the neighboring town of Gretna. On the night of March 9, uh, he assaulted Charlie uh, Cortemilia in, in, in a similar fashion, badly injuring Charlie and his wife, Rosie, killing their two-year-old daughter. Man, uh, he sent in a crazy letter to the press that started off with hell, March 13, 1919. Esteemed mortal of New Orleans, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. And to learn anything more about him, at least from me, you're going to have to tune in to next week's wild card of an episode. Right now, it's time for some Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Oh, shit. I got a lot of you on Friday with a lie about the dog fucking. Makes me very happy. So many messages have come in. Uh, several time suckers who came to the Tampa shows told me that I got them as well. I, I even got Heather Rylander, uh, who did the initial werewolf research. She wrote in with a subject line of, oh, fuck everything. And then she said, I did the research for werewolves, and I fucking fell for the cave painting dog sex. I was sitting on my couch thinking, how the fuck did I miss that in the hours I was on fucked up werewolf sites? You done got me good, Cummins. Heather. <laughs> well, Heather, if it makes you feel better, you're not alone. Uh, I also got Alabama sucker, Zachary Williams, uh, amongst others. He wrote in saying, I finished listening to the werewolf bonus sucker on my way home from, the, from working in the emergency room. After a long and exhausting shift filled with weird patients and strange circumstances, I guess my brain thought, sure, people are weird. I bet a few of them fucked wolves. <laughs> and why wouldn't we be scared of the offspring? Uh, that's horrifying. I guess it's fitting that you finally caught me completely on the last regular bonus suck. Oh, I love it, Zachary. Oh, and, and there is and, and there is at least one more bonus suck coming. Friday, September 14th. Uh, I didn't feel right just suddenly stopping with no warning. So one more. And then, you know, I don't know. Who, who knows? Maybe someday life will change in a way that makes it feasible again. Uh, I got an aggressive and nice message and shout out request, uh, request from sweet sucker Ashley Knowlton. She writes, Dan, you goddamn motherfucker. Uh, my husband continually says, quote, what is big deal? What is big deal? What is big deal? I finally got him to stop. And now at least three times a day, he Michael motherfucking McDonald's me. I can't take any more triple M. We do love your podcast. Our one year anniversary, uh, wedding anniversary is coming up. So can you please give him a shout out and ask him to stop? His name is Curtis. Love your podcast. Glad my husband happened upon it and got me into it as well. Uh, I love it. Uh, I love when you fuck up your pronunciation. <laughs> well, that's good. I can't help it as uh, hard as I try. And your hilarious jokes and your character voices keep on sucking Hailbow Jangles, which is also the name of our dog who came from the pound with the name. Uh, but we always called him Bojangles before. We stumbled upon your pad- podcast. Happy coincidence. It was meant to be. Oh, I love that you have a Bojangles. Sincerely, Ashley. Well, happy anniversary, Ashley and Curtis. Happy anniversary. Keep sucking together. And I am sorry about the the, the Michael McDonald. I know it's annoying. It comes from a good place. You know, I'm sure... I'm sure Curtis, you know, just like me with the McDonald, he's probably just always thinking, you know, just how do I please you? 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 Girl in your one way heart. Girl in your one track mind. How do I please you? How do I please you? Oh, when I say that you're the only one, I'm not trying to fool you, baby. <laughs> that's a hard one, man. If that's what it takes, 
I don't need to know anymore. That's a, that's a tough one to do without music. Okay, okay. I, I tried. I tried. And finally, fun werewolf update from sucker Damien uh, Bushiman. I kind of just sped through your last name because it's a fucking tricky one. He says, hey, Dan. Uh, I have an interesting werewolf story to share, but wanted to say that I understand about the bonus episodes. Thank you for keeping them up for so long. Well, that's, thank you. That's nice. I do hope that you keep up a similar cadence with the subjects. Uh, bonus episodes tend to be more irreverent and fun, I've noticed. You know what? I, I will. Uh, I like the break from killers and hardcore history. You know what? Absolutely. I do uh, curate. I mean, I know the space lizards pick some, but I definitely balance out uh, based on what they pick to, to to keep it from falling into a rut. I do my best. Um, anyways, I posted this on the Facebook page, but this is a lesser known, but cool werewolf story. It involves Thais of Kaltenbrunn, a man known as God's werewolf. In 1692, at the age of 80, he went on a trial, he went on trial, accused of being a werewolf. But instead of claiming that he got his powers from the devil, he stated he got them directly from God. Every year he would transform and venture into hell itself to do battle with the coven of satanic witches that would steal grain and livestock from good Christians. He would slaughter them on behalf of God and return the missing items before they were missed. In fact, he claimed that there was a small army of werewolves called the Hounds of God that fought evil secretly. Amazingly, he was not killed and simply flogged and banished for perversions of Christianity. How has this not been made into a movie? Oh, yeah, incredible. And you know what? And if he was like 80 and really survived a medieval flogging, maybe he really did have some werewolf blood. That's a tough son of a bitch right there. God's werewolf fighting witches in hell. You're right. How is that not being made into at least a video game? Somebody get to it. Uh, thanks for all your messages, everybody. Uh, always appreciate your Time Sucker updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, that's all for this week, unless you're a space lizard. Talk to you Thursday if you are. Uh, we've added time codes to the Secret Suck going forward, by the way. So if you don't like one of the segments, well, now you know where to skip to. Skip to the next segment, you know, a la carte it, baby. Pick and choose. Uh, have a great week. Maybe don't buy anything from a salesman claiming he was an Area 51 spaceship pilot and keep on sucking.